We find people that basically can't make enough uh, to, to, to eat before they go into the fields. I don't believe that. I think that you're looking at other places that are not Central Romana. People actually who focus on and who like getting an orgasm never get one. Pull up your socks and figure out what you're going to do. <laughs> Any chance we'll ever get to be a completely red state? Oh, yeah. And for the future, it's always uncertain. Wherever but more uncertain now. And listen, Blue Ivy is six years old, Beyonce is she tried to outbid me on a painting. Everybody in Atlanta right now at the Louis Vuitton store, if you black, don't go to Louis Vuitton today. That's why you need to take a meeting with Kanye West, Bernard Arnault. Hello and welcome to Grub Stakers. I'm Andy Palmer and I am joined by my friends. Yogi Polywolf. Steve Jeffries. Sean P. McCarthy. And today we have special guest Alex Patak. Hi, hi, I'm Steve Jeffries. <laughs> <laughs> Today we have uh, special guest backup Steve Jeffries. Um, <laughs> uh, here to talk about the Tish family. Uh, they are, uh, we're covering the Tish family this week, uh, uh, basically to return to a theme that we were doing during the presidential campaign uh, regarding the people who were funding Joe Biden. And mm -hmm. we never named this kind of segment, but I'd like to suggest uh, who's who of who's Biden, Biden's a Biden. <laughs> who's abiding Biden. Who Biden's a Biden. Yes. Let's let's learn more about the people who are building back better. Yes. <laughs> uh, so uh, of note uh, is Jonathan Tish. Uh, he uh, is the most the richest member of the Tish family who has donated over 11,000 to the Biden campaign. And uh, the total Tish family net worth is six billion, with Jonathan Tish uh, being worth one point three billion, Steve Tish one point one billion, Lori Tish one point one billion, and then uh, there are a couple other Tish brothers uh, who are the, the son of this guy Larry Tish, who was more stingy with his will than the father of the other guys. Um, and so they have Andrew Tish has thirty million, and James Tish has ten million. Sad. But, very sad. Um, How could you even live on thirty million? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny because it's like not an amount of money where you would materially notice a difference in person meeting with those people. But I bet when they're in the room with their cousins or what have you, they're just like, uh, I have nine hundred million left. <laughs> <laughs> you have to imagine like the the millionaire Tishus are very frustrated thinking things like, I'm never going to get in Jeffrey Epstein's black book at this rate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what what's the like ultra-rich equivalent of like, I'll never own a home? I'm trying to think of it. <laughs> it's got to be the same dynamic of like when you go to your high school reunion as a comedian and everybody else has settled down. Right, right. <laughs> I'll never be able to purchase a private army. <laughs> Which you can tell because they make you feel safe. Yeah, it's a qualitative difference. I'll never get to hold the knife at the adrenochrome sacrifice. <laughs> <laughs> now, we have Alex here for a very special reason, besides the fact that he's funny and charming. He also attended the Tisch School of the Arts at NYU, uh, named after Larry and Bob Tisch, both dead now. Uh, and we were wondering, if uh, what what was it like attending the Tisch School of the Arts? How How was that experience? In a word, prestigious. Um, there weren't a lot of people in my major, uh, in my concentration of podcasting, uh, but they do provide you with the classes to achieve excellence upon graduation, and I like to think I followed through with that. Um, 
there is a whole element to going there because I kind of got in on a fluke because I didn't have the grades to get in. Hmm. Um, the I applied to the screenwriting program and mm-hmm. they wanted you to send in like 30 or 40 pages of your scripts you'd written and I didn't have any scripts written. So I just uh, got like a Word document and wrote a long uh, story in 2009 about if like bears were zombies or something very <laughs> Invader Zim style <laughs> random like that. Sure. And I sent it in and I didn't hear from them for a long time and I got a special email that was like we want you to know how bold it was to only send one sample <laughs> for your portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> but that kind of guts is what we want here at Tish. <laughs> and so they let me in on academic probation and then it turns out make-believe classes are very easy <laughs> and that wasn't a problem. <laughs> Do you find your time at Tisch was because you say you were in those make believe classes? So like, what what was your daily life like at Tisch? Okay, so I w- I had uh, I had minors in sociology and game design because <laughs> I got to pick, <laughs> and um, uh, excluding those classes, uh, my my curriculum was like I'd have one or two that were either television writing or screenwriting where you pick your concentration, so you're working on a long-form project like that over the course of, mm-hmm. like, a uh, six months. Um, and then, aside from that, they do things like forms of drama, where an old man who later gets Me Too'd would go and tell you about, <laughs> like, how Greeks <laughs> invented romance right. or whatever. <laughs> and I actually really liked those. Those were really cool. And we had one or two that were, like, live performance kind of classes mm-hmm. where you'd write little, like, sketches, essentially, and cast other classmates in them right. and it was very fun i don't think most of this translated into applicable skills sure. you should be yeah, using right. but in terms of like an arts camp you pay hundred twenty thousand dollars for a year it was great <laughs> <laughs> now was it in the screenwriting or the game design where you met our um uh, our mutual friend who was austin powers personal assistant oh darren i <laughs> he was in all my screenwriting classes okay the game design classes where i met dylan sprouse which is cool i have his number he won't answer me but i have it and nice. that means i win who is he what did he do he was uh he was in the sweet life of zach and cody he's like a child oh. star his brother is in riverdale Oh. Any of this, you you fucking autists. Have any of you ever watched TV? <laughs> I know what you're talking about. Riverdale, a modern Dale spin on the Archie comics with with romance and thrillers, and the other show being a children's show where children watch it and feel like children. I know things. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Riverdale's like the um, checkout line comic book with murder. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't watch the thing, but it's very. Like a lot of people have seen it. Yeah, people love it. It's stupid or whatever. He's Jughead. Wow, he's my favorite. I mean, that's that's the one you want to be. Jughead or Moose? (laughs) There's a front door. Right. (laughs) (laughs) No, yeah. Darren was in all my screenwriting classes. The entire like uh, screenwriting group or whatever was the smallest thing in the entire department. We only had like 75 people per class, which because the school's huge is very irregular. (laughs) Minuscule. Minuscule. I mean, yeah. compared to like the ten thousand actors they have for right. every graduating class, who are like the most deluded young people you will ever come across <laughs> in your life. <laughs> Even at that school, like standing out, just like <laughs> like uh, half of them seeming like they've never learned to read, but were just put on Broadway at the age of like four right. and are just willing to cut <laughs> each other's throats for it. 
I made this girl cry once because I was ranting about how dumb I thought actors were in my apartment uh, when I was drunk with my friends. And then uh, my friend Francisco, who's very social, went out and just uh, was he like went out drinking and came back with some random people we didn't know. Sure. And so I was just ranting ranting about uh, how dumb actors were. And this girl just starts crying next to me. (laughs) 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 I'd been going out for like 15 minutes and she was like, how could you say that? And I was like, I didn't mean it. And she was like, yes, he did. (laughs) (laughs) At that point, you just have to be like, yeah, yeah, (laughs) dude. Welcome to my house. (laughs) Yeah, it's such a big school. It's going to be hard for my experience to kind of sum up anything there. But um, I do think in retrospect, since I've graduated, like a few people in the tiny department I was in with are like now SNL writers and super connected uh, people. I think either she was in the girl who made um, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend was either in the grade above or below me. Gotcha. So this is like uh, the the uh, classical role of college, right? Is to form like an elite class. Right, if you right. go to like a, sc- a school like this, where you get in and you meet the son of the guy who invented mayonnaise, and together you rule the media <laughs> together. <laughs> right. You write a cartoon about mustard, how mustard's terrible, and mayonnaise and ketchup are the only things that people need. Yeah, this right. this is an aside, but I remember the year after I graduated, some guy I was friends with put out a video with. Dennis Quaid's son, what? where they were trying to start a st- they were trying to start a sketch group, and their whole big thing was like they had a video with Dennis Quaid that wasn't even a sketch that was just them hugging Dennis Quaid and him being like these guys are pretty funny. <laughs> 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 they probably have a lot of money now, but yeah. I think about that a lot. Hugging Dennis yeah. Quaid, oh, that's like the Midas touch. <laughs> That Quaid touch. Those are the things that can happen when you don't submit a sci-fi related screenplay for your admission. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. You just submit a copy of Dennis Quaid's headshot and they just let you in. Uh, But we were talking before we started about how I guess apparently one of the NYU Tisch School's classrooms takes place in the same building that is famous for the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. Is that correct? Yeah, that's the uh, arts and sciences building. So I would go and learn about World War II in a room where a hundred Irish girls were trapped in flames, and that kind of that puts you in the history. I think it's really beautiful. Well, it, in fairness, burning Irish women does combine both art and science. <laughs> <laughs> the sweet science, they call it. Um, no, there's a real feeling. It's an old building, and you're in there, and you're thinking like, uh, I could picture myself burning to death in here (laughs) (laughs) i I see how it happened hard to find the exits or (laughs) yeah big cavernous rooms with like thick doors sure picture that it'd be funny if it burned down again (laughs) well would it be funny steve would it be funny or would it be a uh, classical error You like you like get up in, in the middle. Uh, of your well, class. they're in like you're in like tech, you're in the middle of textiles 103, <laughs> <laughs> and the, the fire alarm goes off. You like you uh, like get up in the middle of your class to try to go to the bathroom, and then you're like, ah, I can't get out. I know exactly what this was like now. <laughs> <laughs> I actually do remember being in there when a fire alarm went off, <laughs> and. Uh, it did work. That the exits worked that time. 
Okay. <laughs> whenever whenever the alarm goes off, basically it would be funny to me, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. From that like, point of view, I see it. It was probably pretty weird when you walked into your World War II history class and they uh, sat you down at a sewing machine to make shirt waists. <laughs> and they locked the doors yeah. to make sure that you did it yeah. right. Even even just historically, it is funny that you would lock the doors on the room Idiotic. until the shift is over. How little trust do you right. have on those girls? They might walk out and enjoy clean air. We can't have that on the clock. They might pocket some shirtwaists. Even like, how much money would that cost you if the girls like take a? I'm, Too much. I'm writing a critical letter to the barons of the 1890s or whatever. What year did this happen? Uh, 1911, I think. <laughs> so, so the reason that the uh, ch- triangle shirtwaist came up uh, was actually during my research of the Tish family, because as a as a coincidence, um, the two major players in the Tish family, uh, Preston Robert Tish or Bob Tish, and Larry Tish, their father Abraham Solomon uh, owned a garment manufacturing business. <laughs> And basically ran sweatshops in New York um, with now a building from the most notorious. Um, I, I tried to see if I could connect him to Triangle Shirtwaist, but it doesn't look like there was any connection. Hmm. Um, I got out of this one. Yeah, but they, uh, uh, I guess we can. They ran uh, different, better run sweatshops in New York City <laughs> in the 19th century. Ones you could be proud of. That's right. Yeah, sweatshops with a human face. That is just so that is just so funny to me though that it's like NYU bought the fucking triangle shirtwaist fire building like this horrific human tragedy where you know a hundred some people were burned to death and they're like let's just uh charge people 50,000 a year to learn how to screenwrite for television comedies here <laughs> like, I mean it's right by the park you're not going to find better real estate than that mhm mhm they got the area on lock. Just get inspired by the ghosts in the room all around you and <laughs> and open your third eye and hear the pitches that they are giving you for your friend's pilot. Yeah, um, ghosts are very important in dramatic process, so I, do, I commend them for their decisions. And I'm willing to sell out any time anyone will have me, if you're listening from the Illuminati right now. <laughs> so on that, uh, let's go into the bio. As I mentioned, the uh, two main patriarchs of the Tish family are Bob Tish and Larry Tish. Uh, Bob Tish was born in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn on April 29th, 1926. Larry Tish was born uh, on March 5th, 1923. And uh, their father owned uh, garment manufacturing businesses and also bought two summer camps in New Jersey, which their mother uh, helped run. And uh, apparently the family moved every three years to get three months of free rent, uh, which was a uh, yeah apparently you used to be able to do that in new york um that's like a city law you move and they give you free rent what, what's happening here yeah you move every three years and you get three months of free rent this is in i don't know pre-war uh new york you know before uh before giuliani ruined before things. pearl harbor before giuliani um, that is actually, it's kind of been happening again with COVID. Like a lot of Manhattan buildings have been offering you three months of free rent just so they don't have to reduce their rent. Oh, uh, that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, that has not trickled down to Brooklyn yet. Yeah. Very no. unfortunate. No, the, uh, 
Well, yeah, New, uh, what is it? Manhattan has the rents are dropping partially because of like NYU, where students aren't coming in, right? And uh, also, they're not getting a refund on tuition. But the head of the Tisch School is dancing to losing my religion on the internet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Which you right. guys brought up, and I could have swore happened five years ago. <laughs> Apparently, it was in March. <laughs> um, that this is really the double-edged sword. The, so the the president of the school, there was a big uh, attempt to oust him while I was there, John Sexton, because mm-hmm. um, the direction they've been taking, because these uh, for-profit private schools are essentially just the corporations that happen to also teach you things right. at this point, and uh, their decision to just become real estate monsters is now blowing up in their face now that no one can pay rent or the students <laughs> can't come in. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of nice in a way. I mean, just from this one angle. This was the only yeah. way this investment was going to backfire like that. The, they, the did the, they did the opposite. They kind of did the opposite of the free rent thing. They were like, oh, tell you what, here's what I can do. I can offer you 60% of what I did before <laughs> for the same price. <laughs> <laughs> you have to take it. I mean, but the gall to be like, oh, we're going to rob students of their money. How about I put a dance online? Like, I've never been in a situation where I thought to myself, you know what this situation needs? Me dancing. It's never happened. <laughs> I, th- I think part of that is just the mind of someone who teaches at an art school. You know what I mean? Sure, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, you've been rewarded for these thoughts for so long <laughs> right, that you right. hear about, like, a terrible virus, and you're like, the world needs... My dance. <laughs> I need to see it. <laughs> I'm going to heal the soul of the nation. <laughs> she can get away with it because how else are you going to get the experience of taking a class with Tim Allen's son? <laughs> <laughs> it is true, though. That is like the pure mindset of an art of an arts teacher at a sixty thousand dollar a year school, and that hears about a problem is like, well, you know, I was listening to REM last night. So what if I just film myself dancing, and that'll make up for the 250,000 dead people? The people bring the solutions. So, okay, uh, back to bio. Yeah, so uh, Bob Tisch, he joined the Army, and then he went to the University of Michigan after his discharge in 1944. And uh, Larry Tisch... uh, was also involved during World War II, where he worked at the in the Office of Strategic Services, mm-hmm. which was the precursor to the huh. CIA. Yeah, so we already oh. got That's right fun. off the bat, we got a CIA connection. Um, so, I uh, just to kind of like jump it ahead for CIA connection. I do want to note that uh, the current two of the current patriarchs, Andrew and uh, Jimmy, also known as James Tish, are both members of the Council on Foreign Relations. <laughs> and uh, apparently Andrew's daughter is named Sarica, or sorry, Jessica Sarah Tish. Um, in November 2019, she was appointed commissioner for the New York City Department of Information Technology and Telecommunication by Mayor Bill de Blasio. Uh, before that, in February 2014, she was the deputy commissioner of information technology for the NYPD. And uh, so, you know, this when you hear the word information technology and uh, NYPD, <laughs> uh, get nervous because she's the one reading your text messages. She's the one who, like when I went to a, um, a protest right after Trump got elected, mentioned it on Twitter. I suddenly got like five different follows from 
uh, accounts that only retweet other things. <laughs> you don't you don't think Susan one three seven nine four seven is a real lady? You're saying? <laughs> I tried to get in her DMs, and this is somewhat of a tangent. But can the cops? Can the NYPD specifically uh, track your eyes still? I went to your a protest eyes? in like 2014 where uh, they were warning us that because they they were planning on getting arrested that that they might try to take your uh, your like an eye scan, and so was, there was a whole training that was like if you go in, tell them no, you'll be in jail a little longer, but then they won't have your eyes. And then what? when we actually got arrested, it was just like, hey, look here, get on the bus, and it was like, shit, that was it. Oh fuck! <laughs> <laughs> this lady has my eyes. Donna Tish, or whatever her name was. You guys are expecting him to be like, can you look in this camera so we can have your eyes for our, for, <laughs> I, I for our, for our technology, which can track eyes? <laughs> right. I didn't expect the cops to be rude. The NYPD didn't plan on me removing one of my own eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine you getting like famous and then someone, like a new hire at the NYPD is trying to impress a girl and he's like, hey. You want to see Alex Patak's retina scan? <laughs> <laughs> we can spot him whenever he goes through a traffic light. <laughs> yeah, uh, anyone with um, a street named after them in New York City has definitely collaborated with a fascist government at some point. Oh, yeah. I mean, it is just sort of funny. Like, basically, any rich family that had members involved in the OSS is in the Illuminati. Like... Just look for the Council on Foreign Relations or look for, like, major political appointments. But, you know, it's OSS, CIA. Once you're in, it's like a family business. You know, you're in for life and your generations after you are in as well. Well, Sean, that's what that dance was all about. Who else would be setting up the Illuminati? It's just them. <laughs> <laughs> they buy the coffee. Yeah. Stepping back to bio, uh, we've actually got a paper route story. Um, nice. Yes. From uh, for for Bob Tish, uh, his wife. She recalled ha- meeting him when he was selling keychains for a dime <laughs> or two for fifteen cents in front of the university's football stadium, and they married in 1948. So, from that, it sounds like you know the it was kind of a hard scrabble life for uh, Bob and Larry uh, and their parents, uh, and then. The very next thing in Bob's obituary is that in 1946, his brother Larry saw an advertisement for a resort in Lakewood, New Jersey, called Laurel and Pines, and persuaded his parents to put up $125,000 to buy it. And a family friend threw in another $50,000 to take one-fourth interest. You know, I read she actually didn't change her last name at marriage. She changed her last name after she went horseback riding one day. Really? Wait, so Andy, this was a hundred and seventy five thousand in nineteen forty six with the one twenty five and then plus the fifty? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh Steve and I did the math. That is a two point four million dollars in today's dollars. You could buy a hamburger for a nickel. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that is the amount of money that they were loaned at that time. Two point four million. Oh man, what a fucking crazy life. It's so funny when you try to like trace these legacy fortunes back to like who had the first money, and then you're like, okay, well somebody already had two two and a half million dollars in 1946, so like, and what we just have no idea what they married into a rich family or how did all this happen? Uh, I think it well, I, I think it was from uh, putting Irish ladies to the to work. 
<laughs> to the torch. <laughs> <laughs> you know, $2.4 million seems like a lot, but then you consider you skip three months New York rent two or three <laughs> times. There, there it is. Yeah, yeah. that's true. So, um, as uh, Oliver Cromwell found out, when you like uh, light Irish women on fire, there's gold inside of them. <laughs> <laughs> tell me, tell me where the end of the rainbow is, you lion <laughs> Fenian bitch. <laughs> so, uh, the first thing that Larry Tish did was he uh, refurnished this hotel. Uh, added a swimming pool and had a promotional scheme where he imported three reindeer from Finland to pull sleighs in the snow. Um, and so by the time Bob joined the business in 1948, the hotel was prospering. Hmm. Um, the family then expanded by purchasing unprofitable properties, uh, making improvements and raising rates where um, in the business, Larry would make the deals and Bob would uh, run the companies. And they built their first hotel in 1956, the Americana, at Ball Harbor, Florida. Um, and apparently they didn't need to borrow any money to build it because they were oh. doing pretty well at that point. They had their own reindeer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they didn't need to buy any more. Great resale value on reindeer. <laughs> the reindeer are what is going to yeah. make this entire project go. Yeah. <laughs> most most of, most of the fortune that we're going to get into here is from flipping reindeer. Um, <laughs> they... Uh, they bought a Santa's factory at the North Pole and then demolished it and sold the underlying real estate. <laughs> it's actually far more valuable than the actual uh, loss-making uh, operation of giving children toys for free. I mean, that's where Bob came in, too, because you have him running the company. He's looking at a high reindeer demand area like mm -hmm. Florida. That's He's right. saying, we just got to set up shop, let the money come to us. So in 1961, um, they acquired the Lowe's Corporation, which is uh, now where they make most of their money. Um, uh, what happened in 1961 is there was an antitrust decree that legally separated theaters from movie studios, maybe the last antitrust decree uh, in American history, and it's since been reversed. But um, previously, theaters would have exclusive rights to play movies from specific studios. Mm -hmm. um, and after that was uh, broken up, the Tisch brothers swooped in and bought the Lowe's Corporation of Cinemas uh, for cheap. Uh, oh, and uh, when I say Lowe's, it has nothing to do with the hardware store. It's spelled slightly differently. The yeah, E the, is the on the other side of the W. Yeah. So, Some of uh, us have been to both, and that's our privilege showing. <laughs> <laughs> Andy, what year did they buy the Lowe's uh, Theater Corporation? 1961. So the uh, thing you're mentioning where it would have been the specific uh, production houses, I believe Sumner Redstone was a part of the lawsuits that allowed it so that, we covered some of this in the Sumner Redstone episode, where the movie production companies would no longer have the monopolies that they previously had with theater houses. So some of this uh, goes back to the fucking leather face of Sumner Redstone that's now dead. So what they did with the theaters was um, they, uh, well at the time multiplexes, were the trend where the you know multiple theaters and um a lot of these lowe's theaters were uh, ornate movie theaters that you know you see them in old movies um big fancy places maybe you've been in one but they're not very common now and part of the reason is uh the tishes uh knocked them down for the property value and built hotels in their place wow and um Sons bitches you're gonna make quentin tarantino <laughs> cry if you do that <laughs> <laughs> 
1985, after regulations got relaxed, they sold the theaters that were left to TriStar Pictures, which was a joint venture owned by Coca-Cola, CBS, and HBO. Um, but uh, in the interim, the brothers decided to turn Lowe's into a conglomerate. In uh, 1968, the family acquired Lorillard, uh, the nation's fifth largest cigarette company, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, they also invested $40 million in Franklin National Bank, mm. which they then sold to uh, Michael Sedona, an Italian financier who then looted its assets. And Lowe's was sued by the FDIC for breach of fiduciary duty and misuse of inside information and ended up paying uh, $1.2 million in an out-of-court settlement. Wow. Uh that's 19... one tuition at Tish. <laughs> <laughs> in uh, 1974, they bought the CNA Financial Corporation, uh, which at the time was a nearly bankrupt Chicago-based insurance company. And uh, Sean's going to talk about that and uh, some of their fun antics. And uh, by 1980, Lowe's had a revenue of $4.5 billion, earnings of $206 million. Uh, in the early 80s the tishes bought five super tankers for 25 million when the oil market was depressed um Aww. and apparently the deal carried no risk because even if oil prices didn't rise the scrap value of each tanker was five million and that's how the tishes got into the oil company and so if you're kind of wondering uh, or into the oil business so uh if you're wondering why maybe biden's a bit wishy-washy about say fracking um <laughs> these are the kinds of people who are fun who funded his campaign uh, oh, Jonathan Tish also donated to the Lincoln Project. Um, <laughs> Great. Kings. Yeah. He was behind uh, all those uh, stolen tweets, I guess. Yeah, the Lincoln really? Project is Fat Jew's new thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> it is like the same level of uh, 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 clout to it. I don't know. It makes sense to me if he was somehow involved. <laughs> oh, in 1986... Um, uh, Bob Tish became Postmaster General under Reagan, which is a position he held for two years. And according to the Times, he used his marketing skill to come up with the idea of selling stamps by phone and stressing sales of commemorative stamps, which are financially advantageous to the Postal Service because collectors seldom use them as postage. Um, and then in 1991, Bob Tish bought the New York Giants. And he had the genius idea of making the Giants more profitable by increasing ticket prices. Oh. Yeah. That's the kind of know-how you're going to get from one of America's <laughs> oldest <laughs> cartel families. So um, Larry Tish, uh, also, he, uh, in the 80s, purchased CBS and actually helped facilitate the deal to acquire David Letterman. David, why don't you come by NYU and see some of the students there? <laughs> uh, I think that like he did do that while I was there. I oh, really? I remember him dropping in somewhere. Oh, just trolling for puss? <laughs> just dropping in, trolling for puss. I'm doing my Paul Schaefer voice. I don't know why. <laughs> Innocent man, Paul Schaefer. <laughs> Let me see those worldwide pants. Patek is having an existential realist realization that he missed the moment he could have become a writer on David Letterman's show. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> when Letterman was plowing interns, do you think Paul Schaefer was in the corner on his keyboards? <laughs> Doing sound effects? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. It's a little something I like to call pulling hair. All right. <laughs> Just doing live commentary. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, most of Larry Tish's 
uh, uh, obituary is about his time at CBS, uh, at least in the New York Times obituary, uh, mostly centered around how he destroyed CBS while he uh, was CEO for 10 years. He um, So in 86, he purchased a strong minority stake, about 25%. Um, as a rescue from an assortment of corporate raiders, hmm. uh, was invo- uh, invited to join the board and then elevated to acting chairman and chief executive. And um, after he became chief executive, uh, the president of CBS News, Van Gordon Souter, stepped down because Tish accused him of putting audience ratings over quality of the news division. And Larry <laughs> that Tish. That son of a bitch. <laughs> Larry Tish declared. Whether the news loses money or makes money is secondary to what we put on the air. And he said the news division would get total support from me in every way, financially, morally. And months later, he laid off 230 of the 1,200 news employees and cut the news budget by $30 million, which according to Business Week was the biggest single staff and budget cut in network news history. Uh, he also sold off CBS's publishing units and magazines. And under his leadership, CBS went from first in the country to third behind ABC and NBC and was struggling against Fox. And then um, he claims that he was a success because by the time CBS was sold to Westinghouse Electric Corporation, CBS stock had climbed at an annual rate of almost 15 percent. And according to Alex S. Jones, uh, host of On the Media, not the other Alex Jones, uh, (laughs) quote, he took an institution that was important in this country and he strangled it. But what if it was the other Alex Jones, though, huh? Wouldn't that be great? I had to look. He strangled on... it, folks. <laughs> he took it out on live TV and he strangled it with his two hands, trying to get trying to get the gold inside because he thought it was an Irish girl. They're unrelated. Look into it, Oliver Cromwell. That must be great. Like, if you could reach the other Alexis Jones's voicemail, it probably starts with like, "Okay, so first, if you're calling about the Newton, Connecticut shootings, that's not me. That's the other guy. Uh, I did not say there's a false flag. I do CBS reporting." Yeah, I looked him up. He's like this old public radio host who, I guess, he used the S in his name, but now he's he really got fucked in the last ten, twenty years. Oh yeah, he changed his name to Mike Jones to avoid confusion. <laughs> Who? <laughs> Mike Jones. Oh, who? Mike Jones. So we got um, GameCube, Nintendo. Uh, uh, both the both the Tish brothers are, are all dead now, um, and so uh, their children uh, have taken up the family company. Uh, Jonathan Tish is the main guy. He's worth one point three billion. Uh, as I mentioned earlier. He's the former CEO of Lowe's Corporation, the chairman of the United States Travel Association, which is a lobbying group for the travel and hospitality business, co-owner of the Giants, and was uh, vice chairman of the Welfare to Work Partnership, Hmm. which uh, we can detail in a bit. Uh, Then there's Steve Tisch, worth $1.1 the son of Preston Robert Tisch. He is a film producer who produced Risky Business, Forrest Gump, American History X, The Pursuit of Happiness, and directed an episode of the 1989 television series Dirty Dancing. <laughs> a couple All of hits before the films. Dirty Dancing came out. Yeah, yeah. No, he's got a he's got a pretty good resume as a film producer. Um, yeah, I guess he just took his money and went to Hollywood. Um, then there's Andrew Tish, worth thirty million, co-chair of the Lowe's Corporation, and James Tish, ten million, uh, CEO of the Lowe's Corporation. Oh, and James was also a former supporter of Rudy Giuliani and uh, Joe Leota, 
who ran against Bill de Blasio <laughs> in the most phoned in mayoral campaign way back in, what was it, 2014? Hmm. Yeah, and just according to Forbes, I guess they uh, say the Lowe's Corporation is currently run as a triumvirate between uh, James, also known as Jimmy, Andrew, and Jonathan, with, as Andy mentioned, Jimmy being the uh, the CEO. But I did just want to note regarding Epstein connections, in Epstein's Black Book, you can find Jimmy and his wife, Meryl. You can find uh, Andrew and his wife, Anne. And you can find uh, David Tish is apparently their nephew born in 1981. But no Jonathan Tish in the Black Book. Um, Jonathan but- is pure... <laughs> <laughs> but I, I did want to note actually um leland naley is a reporter at mother jones and in october she published an, ar- an article called i called everyone in jeffrey epstein's black book and she uh, <laughs> highlighted some of the responses apparently she called the number given for jimmy and merrill tish and she got merrill tish on the phone what and i could just read the transcript of the call uh, quoting here, uh, Merrill Tish, the former chancellor of the New York State Board of Regents and heir to the Lowe's Corporation. Uh, quote, me, hey, I'm doing a story on Jeffrey Epstein. I was wondering if you ever met the guy or interacted with him. Merrill Tish, I don't know who you are. How did you get my number? <laughs> me, I, <laughs> me, I got it from Epstein's contact book. Tish, from who? Uh, me, Jeffrey Epstein's contact book. Tish. Uh, all caps no this is ridiculous who are you what's your name me my name my name's leland i'm doing a story for a magazine tish oh my god you have got to be kidding me no i can't help you out thank god i mean really me uh me meryl uh meryl and jimmy were listed with an address and this number you're tish right with a c there's a david tish listed as well don't know if you're related meryl tish huh goodbye (laughs) 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 yeah we got meryl tish on the phone and then rem just started playing (laughs) there were thoughts (laughs) can i just say uh we had a bit of uh trouble at first kind of finding dirt on the tish family but i've learned um doing a billionaire podcast and googling their name plus jeffrey epstein is like when you find a busted combo in tekken and just spam it every match (laughs) it really really fixes the Finding dirt about billionaires problem, having that black book out there. It's the Raphael and Soul Calibur triangle, triangle, <laughs> triangle combination. We also learned that a great way to find dirt on a billionaire is to uh, type their company name and then asbestos. Yes. <laughs> that's That's been my other technique, is you take the company name, then you try fraud, then you try asbestos, then you try union, <laughs> then you try dead people, then dead babies specifically. We didn't have any dead babies on this one, just uh, drilling engineers. So let's talk about, uh, yeah, the Lowe's Corporation and what that really is. So we mentioned there's CNA Financial, which deals in insurance. Um, They actually recently got sued for not paying out COVID losses to their clients, their corporate clients. Um, The clients didn't even sue for damages, just the payouts that they were owed by the company. (laughs) Motherfuckers. they have Boardwalk Pipelines, which is a natural gas pipeline company, uh, Lowe's Hotels, um, and Altium Packaging, which is a plastic packaging company. They also have, um, uh, as we mentioned, a uh, large stake in Diamond Offshore Drilling, though that's a public company. It's not completely owned by Lowe's. Hmm. Um, so I guess we can get into some of the, um, some of the different 
controversies with Lowe's, uh, as we mentioned with asbestos, um, there's a, a quote from James Tish in an interview in the Washington Post where he said, we have asbestos lined pockets. We don't let cash burn a hole in them. Um, and incidentally, the Tish family has two major asbestos uh, crises. In 1968, Lowe's acquired uh, Lorillard, the nation's fourth largest tobacco company and maker of Kent cigarettes. And in the 1950s, Kent cigarette filters were made with uh, Crocel... I'll get it on the fifth one. Uh, Crocildolite, the most lethal form of asbestos known. Uh, <laughs> Hell yeah. That's that good shit. <laughs> yeah. It's like it's unleaded. They, they ran that uh, ad campaign where they went, Marlboros are for pussies. <laughs> you're not a real man if you're not smoking asbestos. <laughs> oh, man. Even just hearing that name takes me back to NYU, and you'd go to the, the parties after class. We'd all be passing around Crisildolite, taking bumps. <laughs> and then um, they also uh, have Diamond Offshore Drilling, which is being sued by former workers who were uh, knowingly exposed to asbestos. Uh, what happened is um, when they acquired Diamond Offshore Drilling in uh, 1989 for $48.5 million, which is one of the largest offshore drilling companies, uh, they got sued later by engineers because the engineers were not informed that the drilling mud uh, that was used to cool drills in offshore drilling uh, was filled with asbestos and apparently you get it in the form of a powder and then mix that up with water to make it into the mud so they just had lots of powder full of asbestos floating around and no one told them there was asbestos so they didn't have any kind of respirators and then uh, about you know 20 years down the road 30 years down the road they get mesothelioma and uh, asbestosis and um, filed a lawsuit and Diamond Offshore Drilling argued in 2013 that they were not liable in the case because the company was purchased in 1989, and that was after the asbestos exposure. So they claimed that because the company changed hands, they didn't have to pay anyone who worked for the company um, for their treatment for asbestos exposure. Um, I couldn't actually find any updates on this, so my guess is that either they settled out of court or they were legitimately able to thwart the lawsuit on that basis. Um, but that's because their argument's not like we stopped using asbestos. It's just like, well, we, we bought it at some point during the ongoing, <laughs> so we're no longer liable. Yeah. I yeah. paid good money for that asbestos. <laughs> yeah. No, they even acknowledge in the court documents, they're like, yeah, there was some asbestos, but it wasn't our asbestos <laughs> at the time. I'm just holding it for a friend. Yeah. I liked um, from that same Washington Post article, you quoted um, James Tish saying that thing about we have asbestos lined pockets, which like of all the fucking metaphors, yeah. <laughs> what's going on in your subconscious, buddy? But they in that same article, they also quote Andrew Tish with, I think, another revealing quote. He says about the company, quote, we want to be as collaborative as possible. Um, he, uh, who adds, uh, said Andrew Tish, who adds that face-to-face -face discussion is favored over memos and reports. Quote, keep it simple, open doors, shirt sleeves, and talk about it. Don't write about it. And in terms of other revealing quotes, uh, don't write things down is another, uh, pretty revealing quote to give to the Washington <laughs> Post. Was that shirt sleeves? What? 
Yeah, I mean, because he's giving this quote in context of like, uh, we have a casual office environment. Anybody can just oh, kind of right, walk right. in and talk to anybody. You're not all, you don't have to wear a suit, that kind of stuff. And right, right. David Letterman could come in and fuck the interns. <laughs> 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 I'm now getting this vision, this entire narrative of a roaming David Letterman <laughs> going from office to office around New York, taking his due like the Reaper. <laughs> This Wall Street interns, he doesn't care. <laughs> you know who I am, don't you? You'll let me in. I need Paul no Schieber's introduction. Paul Schieber's going to have to rough you up. <laughs> He's followed by around by the CBS Orchestra. From New York, the greatest <laughs> city in the world, it's serial rapist David Letterman. <laughs> Yeah, after, after they passed the late show to Colbert, there's been a spike in David Letterman-related sexual... Uh, <laughs> so, in the criminal justice system, there are two distinct and important factions. David Letterman and the prosecutors who prosecute. <laughs> Andy, when, when did the Tisch family get this school named after them? Did we get there yet? It's got to be after uh, the, the OG Tishes. Honestly, I didn't write it down. I, I have it. Uh, it's just um, from Wikipedia. In 1985, the school NYU school's second dean, uh, David Oppenheim, solicited a donation from Larry and Bob Tisch uh, that made possible the acquisition of 721 Broadway, where mm -hmm. most of the Tisch school's programs are housed. And in recognition of the generosity of the donation, the school was renamed the Tisch School of Arts. And it's so, across from Olids. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice. Did you get any so, good yeah, lids there? 85. Uh, I didn't ever get any lids, but I did hang out and look at all the lids and touch them and then decide not to get any <laughs> a bunch of times. They loved me. They loved me over there. <laughs> get the pack discount at lids. <laughs> Five finger lids discount. Try <laughs> <laughs> the hats Getting on. Out of my <laughs> hugely expensive college and then stealing hats <laughs> every day <laughs> if you take the sticker off it's yours <laughs> <laughs> this belongs to the next generation so uh the tishes they may not like having anything written down in the corporate offices but uh it's a little different say if you're a hotel employee um for instance, in 2018, uh, there was a class action lawsuit against Lowe's Hotels uh, for the use of biometric data, right. where um, the lawsuit alleges that the Chicago-based hotel did not comply with Illinois biometric... <clears throat> the lawsuit alleges that the Chicago-based hotel did not comply with the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act. Um, what they did is the Lowe's Hotel in Chicago implemented a fingerprint-based timekeeping system hmm. for employees to punch in and out because they claim it was to cut down on time-tracking fraud, what? which I'm sure was just costing them tons of money. Um, yeah, seven twenty-five an hour. That adds up, Andy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, the, in point of fact, the fingerprint data was given to third parties without the employee's knowledge or consent, lending the employees to a risk of... Uh, identity theft, uh, especially if third-party companies also had the social security numbers associated with the fingerprints, uh, which they often did. Um, the fingerprint data was given to payroll processors, vendors, and other third parties, 
uh, workers also noted that they have no way to ensure that these third parties are protecting their private data. And state law requires that employees must give their approval in writing after the company has informed them in writing about how the biometric information will be stored, how it will be collected, and how long it will be maintained. And Lowe's finally settled in July 2020 for $1.05 million. Hmm. So they basically admitted, yeah, we were taking your data and giving it to weird companies. Um, and uh, here's, you know, with the number of employees, they probably got maybe a couple thousand each. Jeez. Yeah. Well, Alex, watch watch for the check for your eye scan data. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Ready at any time to take that check. So um, another interesting thing about the Tish family is Jonathan Tish, who uh, the guy who gave the most money to Biden, um, he served as vice chair to this company called the Welfare to Work Partnership. Um, Jonathan Tish is a longtime Democrat donor. Um, he's a, a friend of Bill Clinton's and even uh, he's he was listed in an article in The Washington Post as. Um, one of the people who has donated to all six national Clinton campaigns, so both Bill and Hillary. Hmm. Um, but the Welfare to Work Partnership specifically, it's a private sector organization that was founded to, quote, take the lead in the new mandates of the 1996 Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act, a.k.a. the Welfare Reform Law that impoverished a bunch of people. Um, the hmm. Welfare to Work Partnership was founded by Burger King, Monsanto, Sprint, United <laughs> Airlines, and UPS. And it provides, according to their website, uh, innovative workforce solutions for U.S. companies of all sizes and industries to successfully hire, retain, and promote welfare recipients and other unemployed and low-income workers, including information, technical assistance, and support. Um, I guess we should go over uh, a brief history of welfare to work. It... Um, it replaced the New Deal era aid to families with dependent children act. Um, and after Clinton vetoed two Republican proposals to drastically cut that program's funding, he signed into law the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Act. I do feel like uh, Welfare to Work bill was a big improvement over their original title, Hamburger Wage Slave <laughs> Decree. <laughs> <laughs> That's what that's what you see when you put on the they live glasses. <laughs> <laughs> you just see the king everywhere and you got to catch him. It's like that game they had on that Xbox CD in 2008. That's right. Well, that's why they make the big bucks for naming this these things, you know. You got to be a real genius to come up with Patriot Act instead of Reichstag Fire Enabling Act 2.0. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Do you ever think about like where you would fit into the machine? You know, like I feel like I could come up with a very uh, a bunch of like great soft names hmm. to give I think to I would horrible be calls. You'd be well, one of the namers. Would... Yeah, okay. I'd be in the I'd be in the names room shooting out names. How about opportunity clause? That's just so that's like on my <laughs> card I give people. You're hired. <laughs> All right. I would be I paid so. to uh, I would be paid to psy up the left through my podcast. Oh, that, that would Shut be Shut up, uh, Sean. Shut oh. the fuck up. <laughs> uh, uh, no, we, we can edit this out, too. This internship. Oh, we never learned how to edit. <laughs> the CIA never gave us editing software. All right. All right, we're going to stop the recording, and then we're going to start it up again, and the listeners won't know. 
It's so funny to imply that any DIY podcast is a CIA op because I mean, and I mean this lovingly. We are all so badly run. <laughs> like even if you were the handler, you'd be like, "This is a terrible return on investment. <laughs> we should do this again." <laughs> What's uh? What we're gonna do is we're gonna indoctrinate about five thousand people. <laughs> And they are all going to fight to the death with each other the entire yeah. time. <laughs> the worst thing is, though, Alex, is that as we've been doing this, all of us, like the more I see like, oh, and now Obama has a podcast. Oh, and now Matthew McConaughey has a podcast. And then you listen to those pieces of shit and they're not much better. And then a part of you is like, wait, is everyone inept and we are <laughs> doing as good as everyone else, even with millions of dollars? Or do they suck or do we all suck? It really blurs the lines on making a creative thing and realizing no one knows how to do anything. What do you mean the president can't edit? <laughs> <laughs> Malia went to Harvard. Let her edit. Thanks again for returning to the show. I finally figured out the uh, reverb button was on. <laughs> that was thanks to Shorty with the cash on that feedback. <laughs> they're, they're watching the YouTube tutorials as well. It's like, okay, you might be here to edit, and we're teaching you Audacity 102. Well, I guess this is where I'm going to learn how to split cut. Now, now uh, you can. Um, Edit out that that thing about me smoking crack in the back of the limousine, right? <laughs> yeah, it's oh, um, it's right before the the Grubhub ad. <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea that somebody's being paid to edit Obama's podcast. It puts like the same level of attention into it I do when I'm like playing games on my phone. <laughs> so now you say I need an RSS feed. <laughs> what the fuck is that? <laughs> Listen, we killed Osama bin Laden, but I can't figure out the iTunes podcast beta analytics. <laughs> uh, what were we talking about? Welfare, welfare, to, welfare, work. To, welfare to work. Um, so, okay, here's what Bill Clinton did. Uh, it converted the AFTC, uh, uh, Aid to Families with Dependent Children, into a flat-funded block grant and sent it to states to administer, and that was known as the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families Program, or TAMP, D-A-N-F. Uh, a block grant is a fixed sum of money that the federal government gives to state governments to administer a program subject to federal guidelines. And uh, what that means is that um, the TANF block grant has been flat funded at $16.5 billion since the law was initially implemented 20 years ago, uh, despite increases to cost of living. It, it doesn't increase with cost of living. And as a result, the block grant has actually lost more than one third of its value since 1996. Wow. Yeah. Um, and now fewer than one in four families with children living below the federal poverty line are helped by TANF today, uh, which is down more than two thirds since 1996. Um, they're also un block grants are also unable to respond to economic downturns. So during the Great Recession, the number of families on TANF only increased by 16 percent, uh, despite the number of unemployed workers spiking by 90 percent. And uh, due to the money going to local governments, uh, much of it is treated as a slush fund and diverted, according to the no. Center on 
budget and policy priorities, only one in four TANF dollars goes to needy families. Um, wow. And in terms of actually getting people work, which is, you know, the welfare to work part, uh, only 8% of TANF's funding goes to employment preparation services. Uh, states aren't even allowed to provide job search and job readiness assistance for more than four consecutive weeks and six weeks in an entire year. And vocational training only counts toward required work activity for 12 months. Um, as for where Tish fits into this, uh, in, a in 1999, in a press release on HospitalityNet, uh, Jonathan Tish said that to address the labor shortages in the hospitality industry, he would be Jesus. hiring people directly out of welfare to work. Yeah. Quote, there are hundreds of thousands of able-bodied, enthusiastic, work-ready welfare recipients looking to re-enter the mainstream economy. Uh, uh, his words, not probably theirs, uh, in order for this country to move more than 4 million people from welfare to work, the business community must take the lead. So basically, he just used it to fish for uh, cheap labor from people who, you know, were probably on welfare because they needed to take care of children during the day um, and uh, then forced them to fold towels in his hotels. Well, Andy, nothing you've described seems related to the subsequent rise in extreme poverty after the law yeah. was signed. Um, but I was going to say, uh, Christopher Hitchens, uh, actually, before he went clinically, uh, psychopathically insane, uh, wrote a book called No One Left to Lie to about Bill Clinton, and he covers welfare reform in a, in a chapter of it. And he talks about how welfare reform basically ended up creating, I mean, it was intended to create a slave labor pool for employers like the Tishes, and he talks specifically about Tyson Foods, which, you know, working in a Tyson Foods factory, it's a very difficult, very dangerous job. And he talks about how basically they're creating these slave labor pools. And if you say no, well, you're fucked. You're going to starve to death. Um, and they can get rid of you for any reason. You can't unionize. There's just like, uh, you know, countless people ready to take your place because everybody's so desperate. And I just wanted to kind of update that with Tyson Foods recently. Uh, managers were found to be um, gambling or betting on which of how many of their employees would contract COVID. And five employees actually died of COVID. Jeez. So, you know, I mean, it's just, they, it, it's created this absolutely horrific situation for low-wage workers in this country. Right. They had, a, they had a strike system. You got like five strikes, and then you can't come back to the chicken Holocaust factory anymore. <laughs> just cool guys. <laughs> Fun bros. Uh, speaking of COVID, uh, Diamond Offshore Drilling um, got... Uh, money from the CARES Act, then filed for bankruptcy, um, and in the interim, they used that money from the CARES Act to give out bonuses to executives. <laughs> Kings. It's funny a little bit. <laughs> so, uh, I think, finally, Sean, you did some looking into their insurance company and some of their hijinks uh, with regards to the Iraq war. Yeah, so they own 90% of uh, what's called CNA Financial. It's based in Chicago. It's primarily a commercial insurer. And I just wanted to kind of note, it is interesting what the new generation have done since they took over. As we mentioned, they sold off their asbestos uh, tobacco cigarettes company. Mm -hmm. oh. They sold off their... They sold off their watchmaker uh, called What are their Bol pockets lined with now? <laughs> uh, Bolova was their watchmaker. They sold that off in 2008. And um, 
as we've kind of mentioned here, primarily they moved into oil drilling, natural gas pipelines. Um, according to Washington Post, they provide about 11% of the natural gas in the United States as of 2012. Um, so we might do a follow-up episode on some of those other areas. But just with regards to the insurance, it seems like the only two uh, big legacy businesses they're still in is they're still in hotels, and then since the 70s, they're still in this insurer, uh, CNA Insurance. And I took a bit of a look at CNA Insurance, and it was um, pretty interesting. So CNA Financial Corporation actually dates all the way back to 1897 in Chicago, Apparently, in the 1960s, CNA covered uh, one of the Beatles concerts in the event of inclement weather at Shea Stadium. So uh, I just kind of skimmed through CNA's Wikipedia and um, defrauding Iraqi translators who were blown up by insurers is not on their Wikipedia. You have to look elsewhere to find that that part of the story. Oh, I wonder why that is. Yeah. Uh but so, as we mentioned, the Lowe's Corporation purchased 56% of the stock of CNA in 1974. Now they own 90%. And to kind of start the story, just on Yelp, even for an insurance company, they have extremely low Yelp reviews. <laughs> I actually went through, I read every single one of these. They have 46 Yelp reviews. Every single one, except for one, is one star. The one, <laughs> the one that is not one star is two stars. <laughs> and uh, it's because they so answered like, a phone call. <laughs> so uh, you know, there's like business owners reviewing them. There's car insurance owners. There's long-term care owners. Uh, basically, all saying the same story of they were denied claims based on excuses and paperwork and runarounds, uh, like. Uh, you'll find a couple stories of people cancel their policy via phone and then four months later get a fat bill saying they never canceled their oh, policy. Wow. Uh, there was a guy who said he bought a one-year small business insurance policy, which they then sent to him as a contract for a six-month small business policy at the exact <laughs> same price. And then he spent six months arguing with them, uh, with them threatening to audit him throughout the entire time. Wow. So just like this kind of bullshit, um, you know, a, a guy says, I've been going through them for workers' comp claims uh, for four months. They will make you go through hoops and still deny your claim. Um, uh, in 2012, somebody writes, in my opinion, you shouldn't expect the very nice voice answering the phone to be on your side, and you may never speak to the same person or hear the same thing twice, so record conversations as they do. Carefully log dates, times, details of everything, take photos, and still expect a big fight for coverage. Um, please note that I didn't wish to give them any stars, but the system wouldn't allow it. Uh, <laughs> and like the most horrifying reviews are the ones about their long-term care policy insurance. Cause basically, you know, if you are worried about having to put your mom in a home or whatever, right. you buy an insurance policy and there's just a bunch of stories about, I paid them this premium on time every day you know, every billing cycle for 20 straight years. And then when I went to put my mom in a home, they were like, fuck you, we're not paying for that. Oh, wow. So just a bunch of stories like that. Um, 2018, here's a Yelp review. Quote, I am a hospice social worker and routinely deal with submitting information needed to process long-term care claims for patients who need the money to pay for their treatment. Avoid, avoid, avoid. They avoid phone calls, avoid customers, avoid ever paying anything out. The only thing consistent about them is their denial of claims. What this company does to seniors should be considered fraud. They do everything possible to delay or deny a claim. I've actually had someone from this company say, quote, well, if you just wait long enough, then they 
they die and we won't have to pay out, unquote. (laughs) I don't know how these people sleep with themselves at night. And, you know, like, God, there's and there's so many just horrifying stories like this. I won't. That's also their approach to Joe Biden. Uh, I won't go through all of them. A guy says, I bought a long-term care policy from CNA in 1998. So uh, my parents had uh, paid into this for 20 years before I needed dementia slash assisted living care for my mom. The claims process is built on the premise of delaying, denying, and dragging out the payment as much as possible. They will, will first put you and the facility through bureaucratic hell with needed forms, etc. Then once you've followed the processes, they've laid out and submitted everything. Uh, they said they need it for the claims to be paid. They come up with something to justify a rejection, usually another random required form they pull from their ass. To make matters worse, they won't call you or email you to let you know there's a problem. <laughs> they say they can't make outbound calls. They will send you the rejection notice via U.S. mail so that buys them an extra few days on top of the time they've already wasted. This process happens two to three times per claim. And then there was like one other story I'll summarize uh, regarding long-term care. Uh, They rejected an invoice because it was submitted two weeks early. Uh, So he got them on a conference call with the long-term care facility to agree to resend the invoice after June 1st. CNA agreed to this. Well, two weeks later, I get a rejection notice saying the invoice was a duplicate. Wow. (laughs) So they rejected the invoice, then he resubmitted it, and then they rejected it because it was a duplicate. So, you know, you can just only imagine what it's like dealing with this fucking insurance company. Jeez. Um, This is what you get when you're not allowed to just have... Irish six-year-olds in a factory. (laughs) It's an either-or. America made its decision. But the most horrifying kind of story that I found regarding this is a reporter named T. Christian Miller in uh, ProPublica. He wrote about kind of what happened with regards to these Iraqi translators, Iraqi and Afghanistan. It's an interesting story where there's a federally funded program based on the World War II era Defense-Based Act, Defense Base Act uh, that basically says <laughs> that basically says all all civilian contractors operating in a war zone are required to have hazard insurance. You know, like a equivalent of workers' comp, basically. So you know, if they die, some sort of insurance is supposed to pay out benefits to the survivors. Um, and CNA is kind of the second player in this market. It's primarily AIG, but the thing is, like unsurprisingly like every single pentagon uh post 9-11 program there's just a ton of fraud and waste in this so um you can read through uh t christian miller at ProPublica wrote a series of articles on this uh he talks about how cna is taking in uh taking in nearly 50 percent more in premiums that it paid out in profits and he says for context typical domestic insurance profit rates are in the single digit percentage margin so CNA and AIG were making like 35 to 50% profit ratios uh, doing this private sector insurance for uh, contractors in war zones. And of course, how they were getting these crazy profit ratios is going through this same process of rejecting and denying claims for people who had, you know, their leg blown off in Iraq or for translators who got blown up in a bus. Uh, and you can imagine. It's hard enough if you're domestic to get your money from them. If you are a extremely impoverished person in Iraq who was relying on your translator's son for income, it's damn near impossible. Right. 
but isn't this all worth it so that John Early can play his drag character Vicky at Amy Schumer's wedding and be the officiant? Isn't her <laughs> laughter worth the asbestos, Irish women killing, uh, CNA insurance uh, embezzlement system that Sean's describing here? Isn't it worth it to see Amy Schumer happy just for a moment? It was particularly insidious the way the Tish family offered to officiate that wedding and then just <laughs> threw in Sean early at the last second. I think what makes it worth it is the 1989 television adaptation of Dirty Dancing. <laughs> uh, just quoting from the T, one of the T. Christian Miller articles, they talk about a specific case where a federal judge in 2011 said that CNA should be referred uh, to the Justice Department for criminal prosecution. Uh, they were, of course, not criminally prosecuted, but an actual judge from the bench said, this is clearly fraud. People should go to jail for this. The Department of Labor should refer them for criminal prosecution. Uh, it talks and were about they referred for criminal prosecution? They were not referred for criminal prosecution. <laughs> Uh, they talk about one specific case in October 29. Another great day in the American justice system. <laughs> in October 29, 2006, um, insurgents boarded a bus and killed 17 Iraqi-born translators working in Basra for uh, Sallyport Global Services, you know, a security contractor. Um, CNA, under the law, was responsible for paying death benefits to the translators' dependents. CNA paid when the translators had children and spouses, uh, but not to other survivors. Uh, in such cases where there's not children or spouses, the Labor Department demands proof that survivors relied on contractors' es- uh, relied on contractors' earnings. CNA hired investigators who interviewed nine families, confirmed their eligibility, and even set up bank accounts. But CNA withheld portions of the investigators' findings when it submitted the claims to the Labor Department. One CNA file shows that the slain translator had supported his mother, a widow, since his father was killed in the Iraq-Iran war. The town council even issued a statement of support concerning the trans- uh, confirming the translator was his mother's, quote, sole provider. Another CNA file shows that another translator killed in the ambush was sole support for his family, which, quote, could be described as very poor. Unquote. But those pages were missing from the information CNA submitted to the Labor Department. As a result, labor officials accepted CNA's declaration that there were no dependents to pay in any of the nine cases. They saved uh, $500,000 doing this. And, you know, again, these are some of the most desperately poor people on earth and uh, some of the richest people in the world at the, uh, the Tisch family. And they're just shorting $500,000 that they owe under the law and getting away with it. Jeez. It's what we call New York excellence. <laughs> <laughs> the top of the heap again, baby. There, that one, like, that one movie described earlier with the uh, the the television station is directly ripped out of Succession. Oh, really? No. Where they just can uh, like a third of the department so they can make right. off with the money and watch the line go up. And like you know, again, I. I I do encourage people to read these articles uh, just for the sake of time. I'll only kind of summarize, but there's so much fucking fraud in this program. They talk about some sort of special fund that was set up by the insurers. Uh, In one case, uh, CNA paid $5,000 into this special fund and only $518 to a translator's family for burial expenses, but it was reimbursed $9,289 by the federal government for investigating and handling the claims. So they paid out death benefits, but actually made a healthy profit from the federal government when they actually paid out $518 to a uh, translator's family 
for death benefits. And, you know, why they get away with all this is probably noted by T. Christian Miller, who says in 2009, unlike uh, insurance giant AIG, which promised to cease lobbying after receiving billions in bailout money, Chicago-based carrier CNA still works hard to influence lawmakers. The company has spent more than $6 million in lobbying since 2001, including more than 300000 in the first quarter of this year, 2009, according to the Center for Responsive Politics. And then there's just a bunch of other cases of them just refusing to pay for people's prosthetic legs, both, you know, Iraqis and Afghanis, but also American contractors who end up uh, in those war zones. Right. But on the other hand, uh, Jonathan funded the Lincoln Project and they're making Republicans respectable again. (laughs) That's right. Right. Well, you can't put a price on respect, Sean. And that's what this whole episode's about. Yeah. And then uh, the last Christian or T. Christian Miller article is from 2009. It was actually shared on Bernie Sanders' Senate webpage, um, but it just talks about actually a Pentagon study found that uh, Congress could save as much as 250 million a year through a sweeping overhaul of how um, of how insurance is provided to civilian contractors injured in war zones, and basically. Unsurprisingly, the U.S. pays, as of 2009, about $400 million an- annually to AIG and a handful of other carriers, such as CNA, to purchase this special workers' comp insurance. It would be much cheaper for the U.S. government to just provide the insurance directly instead of going through this um, private system that has all this waste and, and fraud. Uh, but, of course... They have not changed that system. And the Pentagon, quote, denied a Freedom of Information Act request by ProPublica to release documents submitted by the firms as part of the review, claiming that the information is proprietary business data. So basically, the Pentagon, unsurprisingly, is working with these big insurers to ensure that their slush fund is protected and uh, the revolving door and the lobbying and everything kind of goes through. And it's just another little small example of just how much money is wasted in, uh, in these war zones. Well, that's very important, but I also want to note that uh, uh, Stephen's cat Leon walked across the camera, and Alex, uh, that looks a lot like Alex's cat Waffles, and Alex made a face and then looked at Waffles. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's another example of uh, private-public partnerships, baby. That's how we won the space race. (laughs) (laughs) Woo! But, you know, that's that's how they got that money to afford that uh, building where those Irish women were burned to death. <laughs> they don't own NYU. I am just going to chime in here. They just bought, they gave them money for the one building. <laughs> Alex, you toe the line or we cut you out of the episode. <laughs> I'm just saying you have to do a different episode on that. It's not the same people. <laughs> it's only loosely related. <laughs> Their name is on the building, Alex. They own the building. Their name is on the... You know what? Irish people aren't people. I don't know why I'm I'm going out on a limb for this. It doesn't matter. This episode, as you said, is about respect, and we didn't bring you on here to uh, disrespect our uh, points about the Tisch family owning all of NYU. Yeah, what? NYU (laughs) shill Alex Patak comes home from his comfy (laughs) podcasting gig. So what, just because you graduated from the most prestigious film school in America, you think you can come on our podcast and correct us? When we say the Tisch family owns NYU. Their dining halls are second to none. (laughs) Patak just wants to protect his Riverdale connects. He wants to make sure that he gets that side role as Jughead's uh, friend. 
Cole, if you're listening, I could be Jughead's friend. <laughs> I know you can make it happen, Cole. You're a very handsome man. We met once. Alex gets a pod- er, uh, uh, text message from his friend whose brother's on Riverdale, just like, hey, um, I heard what you said about NYU being owned by the Tisch family. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to have to end this relationship right now. No, it's not you what understand. I said. I was the only one shilling. <laughs> I was the only one. <laughs> they do fake insurance or something now. I was sort of listening. <laughs> <laughs> like, when I hear dead Iraqi translators, I just tune out. <laughs> not really my business. Yeah, you're going to need a translator to make it interesting, pal. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Get your poor mother on the line. <laughs> All right. Well, this was well, fun. Yeah, this yeah. was a good time. Uh, thanks for joining us, Alex. Where can people find you? Anytime. Um, you can listen to my politics show, Pod Damn America, that I am on most of the time with uh, the wonderful Anders Lee and Jake Flores. Or if you'd rather... Uh, talk analytically about the hit show Dragon Ball Z Kai, you can listen to Ballin' Out Super. Or, if you'd rather just have a 1920s-style radio drama, you could listen to my original radio drama, Theater of Delights. I have three podcasts. Wow. Lovely. No one well, asked for this. <laughs> <laughs> I texted you and specifically asked for this. And with that, this has been Grubstakers. I'm Andy Palmer. I'm Yogi Poyle. I'm Steve Jeffers. I'm Shumpy McCarthy. Thanks for listening. And uh, if you have other dirt about other Tish companies, such as Lowe's Corp, uh, Diamond Offshore Oil Drilling, or Boardwalk Natural Gas Pipelines, or just anything we didn't get to on the episode, please hit us up either in the comments or just shoot us an email or a tweet, and maybe we'll follow up in the future. Email our Proton. I'm tired of getting spam in there and thinking it's dirty and it's never anything. <laughs> Bye-bye.